0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are?
1: So my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I am 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality
2: is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom.
3: And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight.
4: 3CR Union Issues and Workers' Struggles. Feed Radical Radio go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the
5: station on 9419
6: 8377. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
7: A left response to the major developments in capitalism.
5: What Mm. they
6: trade in is not wheat.
7: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website,
2: solidaritybreakfast.org.au
3: Solidarity forever!
4: Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and you probably haven't uh, looked at your uh, edition of The Australian this morning and uh, hopefully you're not even going to see The Australian this morning unless you go off to a a coffee shop and read it for free. But uh, being a radio station, we uh, actually have uh, information of that sort. And uh, uh, I'll take a bullet. At the top of the page, I have to tell you this, The Weekend Australia, Nation's Image Makeover. Industry leaders steer multi-million dollar overhaul of brand Australia. So they're going to get Forrest Joyce Enoch, who is the... uh, director of um Sydney Festival and a fellow called Canon Brooks who's uh, the uh Cooper's Baybury chairman to uh try and create a uh, a special uh, um Campaign to improve Australia's image to ourselves and overseas. It, it just it makes me wonder why why they c- can't just realise that if they just stop being themselves, then perhaps things might settle down a bit. <laughs> apparently, the uh, overseas uh, that we that we need to counter an apparently low opinion of our culture and intellect, as well as doubts about safety. <laughs> anyway. Talk about uh, give give uh, the job to the people who actually make it be like that, but anyway let 's move on to more sensible stuff. I went off to a fantastic thing uh, the Australian unemployed workers uh, Union put on on during the week. it was a uh, a talk and a panel. But the talk was by Virginia Eubanks, who's a welfare rights activist, author of a book called Automating Inequality, How High Tech Tools Profile and Police the Poor, as it were. And she's the Associate Professor of Political Science at a, a university in Albany and in America. And she gave a absolutely fantastic speech about uh, explaining some of the elements that are going into the uh, artificial intelligence uh, process that's being applied to social security so that it becomes nothing about social and certainly nothing about security. Uh, so I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on this because it's so important. The opening part of the uh, night was uh, by Jeremy Polson, who was the chair. Jeremy is one of the uh, members of uh, uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union and he, luckily enough, had been down that day on Wednesday, down to what's called the... Uh, all oh, he, he explains there was an announcement this week um coming out of the Morrison government <coughs> telling them ab- telling us about what they they intend to do changes to uh, the social security uh, arrangements and as Jeremy points out uh actually more of the same uh, more uh more online and uh fewer people and uh more draconian so uh Listen to the first part, and he introduces uh, Virginia Eubanks.
9: Um, so I want to thank you all uh, for coming for a really important, um, you know, provocative, I hope and you know productive uh, night of discussion, basically talking about uh, Australia's increasingly digitized and punitive uh, social security system. Um, you know Australia are you know world, world beaters um, in this space uh, as it stands, we currently have Um, one of the most uh, punitive compliance regimes uh, in the developed world. Uh, A few of us were at the Department of Jobs, uh, just down in Albert Park, uh, this morning, uh, listening to their announcement about what the future of employment services is going to look like. Uh, Basically, it's going to involve, from what I can gather, uh, further digitizing uh, the employment services uh, system um, further putting more onus on unemployed workers themselves to uh, have internet at home, uh, to have a smartphone. Uh, the big elephant in the room was how uh, you know the second poorest unemployed group uh, in the OECD is going to be able to afford um, these things to uh, be able to uh, uh, meet their requirements. But that didn't seem to get a mention um, from the uh, from the department. So. Well, we're hoping you know, today, um, given everything that's sort of happened, especially in the last few weeks, if you guys have seen uh, what's happened in, in the Senate with RoboDebt, um, which is an automatically generated uh, debt recovery scheme, uh, which we know uh, a few weeks ago, uh, 2000, over 2,000 RoboDebt uh, recipients uh, have taken their lives and the government uh, refuses to take responsibility for it. Um, through the government's welfare reform package, uh, last last year, uh, they came up with a new uh, targeted compliance framework, uh, which now issues unemployed workers uh, demerit points, uh, which are similar to, I guess, traffic violations. Uh, because you know, missing your uh, meeting with your job agent is as dangerous as as running a red light, um, apparently. Um, and to the point where last year. Uh, again, we broke a new record where there were 1.6 million uh, penalties, sanctions uh, imposed on, on on unemployed workers. So, really, what we've heard today in the new Job Active announcements, you know, that wasn't mentioned um, at all. Um, they're wanting to digitise services even further, so we can only assume that you know we'll break another record um, this year and the year to come with penalties. Uh, sadly. I'll cut right to it. Tonight's um, uh, main event um, is Virginia Eubanks, who we're delighted um, to have here uh, this evening. Uh, So Virginia is an author, welfare rights advocate, and associate professor of political science at the University of Albany. Her book uh, called Automating uh, Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor, which this is a book that Naomi Klein calls downright scary. So I guess you're sort of like the, the Stephen King of the <laughs> social security space. Um, in it, um, Virginia explains the technocratic shift we've seen uh, towards automating social security and how that works to encode and, and worsen inequality um, with what she calls a digital poorhouse, which is a term that a bunch of us have just stolen um, now. So thank you for that. Um, which basically. You know, entails government control—you know—controlling the flow of resources and entitlements, policing poor and working-class communities, um, and punishing those who need, you know, the most unconditional social security. So, without any further introduction, I'd like you all to warmly welcome Virginia Uday.
8: I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so grateful um, to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union for um, making this happen. And I'm really, really grateful to you for being here to hear about um, our experience in the United States. I did a, a more than 105 interviews over seven years uh, for this book. And in each case, each technology I talk about, I talked to lots of different kinds of people. So developers of the tools, policymakers, frontline caseworkers, But in each story, I started with folks who are most directly affected by the tools, um, folks who are looking for public assistance, who are involved in the child welfare system, who are unhoused or homeless, And it's too rare that we hear the voices of people who are actually directly affected, particularly when we talk about these new technologies. And so I just want to make sure that I introduce you to these stories through the stories of people who are directly impacted. Um, So uh, I'm here uh, to talk about uh, what I describe in the book as a digital poorhouse, which is a sort of invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, and statistical models, particularly predictive models, in the US social service programs. Um, So I wanna talk today about how the rise of this invisible institution um, is sort of sunk in the, into the policy history of the United States um, and how it responds and recreates specifically a narrative of austerity, this idea, this false idea that there's not enough for everyone and that we have to make hard decisions about who deserves to access their basic human needs and who does not. So we often talk about the kinds of tools that I write about in the book as disruptors. Um, But they're really more evolution than revolution. And their roots go very, very deep in U.S. history Um, and specifically to a moment um, in the early 1800s Um, where we decided to sort of invent a new technology for managing poverty, um, which was, in the U.S. context, the county poorhouse. In 1819, we had a really horrible um, economic depression in the United States, One that was accompanied by a lot of organizing by poor and working class people uh, for their rights and their survival. And this of course made economic elites really, really nervous. Um, They did what economic elites always do when they get really nervous and they commissioned a whole bunch of studies. And they framed the question in a very specific way. So they framed the question behind all these uh, studies. What's the real problem during this catastrophic economic recession? Is it poverty? Is it lack of access to resources? Or is it what they called at the time pauperism, which was dependence on public benefits? So how do you think the surveys, the studies came back? Was it actual poverty or was it pauperism? Yes, you're very smart people. Um, This is exactly what the studies came back and said. The problem is when we're too generous, allowing people not to starve through this economic depression, they become dependent on public benefits, they lose their work ethic, they have a bunch of babies and get drunk. So, um, yeah, again, does it sounds familiar. Um, And uh, so they invented this new technology um, at the time, or a technology, honestly, that was um, imported from uh, England, uh, which was our version of the workhouse. Uh, It's called the county poorhouse. And this was basically a brick-and-mortar institution, for um, more or less incarcerating people who asked for support from public funds. So they were strictly voluntary in the sense that homeless shelters are strictly voluntary, although you could be sentenced to the poorhouse for crimes like vagrancy, having nowhere to live, begging, asking for help, or prostitution, which at the time meant having sex while not being married. Um, So you could get sentenced to the poorhouse, but for folks who voluntarily entered, um, they, it was not an easy decision. So uh, it was 1819, so not everybody had these rights. But if you had the right to vote and hold office, you had to give it up in order to enter the poorhouse. You couldn't marry when you were in the poorhouse. You were often separated from your children because it was understood that poor and working class children could be redeemed um, by having more contact with richer families. And by contact, they generally meant. Uh, labor uh, as domestic or agricultural workers. Um, And some of these institutions, one of the most notorious being Tewkesbury in Massachusetts, had death rates as high as 30 percent a year. So um, a third, basically a third of people entering died um, every year. So the reason that I use this as sort of the origin story I tell about the digital poorhouse is because it's a moment that the United States made two really important decisions. The first was that the the first and most important thing our social service system could do is a kind of moral diagnosis, deciding who deserves help and who doesn't, who is deserving and who is undeserving, rather than, say, building a system that created a universal floor under everyone. And the second um, thing we decided at that moment was that it was acceptable and appropriate to ask people to give up one of their basic human rights for another right? So their right to their children or their right to vote for their right to things like food and shelter. And this is what I think of as sort of the deep social programming that underlies the new tools that we're seeing in social services. Um, it, for the sort of techies in the, in the room, that would be the legacy program programming on which the rest of the tool is built.
4: <laughs> Sorry, here we are chatting away, um, and, uh, failing in our duty of care to the program. Uh, Rebecca's turned up a big storm. We've just yeah. had a big storm. That was, <laughs> that was wildly exciting. Um, but anyway, we're listening to, uh, Virginia Eubanks, and, uh, she's a welfare rights activist, and she's written this book called Automating Inequality How High Tech Tools Profile, uh, uh, and Police the Poor. And, um, She's the one who coined this fantastic term, the uh, digital workhouse. Anyway, she's been doing a bit of a tour around the place and uh, sharing her knowledge. She's a really quite fantastic person, but we will continue. Less of me, more of her.
8: I'd like to start with history because it has a tendency to contextualize the tools I talk about in the book, but I also want us to think a little bit together today about this political moment, about um, sort of why these specific tools have become popular at this precise time. Um, And I think there's three reasons for that and I'll introduce you to the technologies through these three stories. Um, The first is these new tools rationalize and recreate a politics of austerity, the idea that there's not enough for everyone. Second, they um, purport to address bias in these systems, but in fact, they often hide or displace the bias to a new place. Um, And third, at their worst, they create a kind of empathy override that allows us to ease the emotional burden of making what I think are inhumanly difficult decisions. Decisions like who gets access to emergency shelter and who is forced to live um, on the street in a tent or in a car. I dedicate this book to um, a little girl named Sophie Stipes, a severely disabled little girl who, um, when she was six, received a letter from the state of Indiana that explained that she would be losing her Medicaid which is the health care insurance program for poor and working families in the United States because she had failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program. So this was happening just as she was gaining weight, really on par with normal um, patterns for the first time in her life. She had just had a gastrointestinal feeding tube um, uh, implanted and she was learning to walk for the first time. Um, so her family was caught up in an attempt by the state of Indiana to um, uh, automate and modernize um, and privatize all of the eligibility functions for the state's welfare programs. So that's Medicaid, that uh, health insurance program I was talking about, cash assistance, with, which in the U.S. is called TANF, and food stamps, uh, a programs now called SNAP, but at the time was called food stamps. So in 2006, Um, The governor of the state at the time, Mitch Daniels, signed what was eventually a $1.34 billion, with a B, billion dollar contract with a consortium of companies including IBM and Affiliated Computer Services, or ACS, now owned by Xerox, to create a system that basically replaced the work of local county caseworkers with online forums and regional call centers, which might sound familiar based on your announcement today. And what that looked like from uh, a caseworker's point of view was in the past, they had been responsible for a docket of families or a caseload, um, which were individuals and families that they often developed relationships with over time and helped them navigate the really difficult, complex, and punitive social service system. Instead, they were now moved to regionalized call centers, often hundreds of miles away from where they lived. Um, and responded rather than um, to a docket of families to sort of a list of tasks that dropped into their electronic workflow management system. So for caseworkers this felt very much like um, they were not able to develop relationships with people over time because every call just went to the next available worker. Um, It felt like their local knowledge was no longer useful. So they could say, like, well, it looks like you're not going to be eligible for food stamps. But they couldn't then say, but there's a food pantry in your town. It's open Tuesday nights. So they felt like it really changed the nature of their job. From applicant's point of view, it felt like if anything went wrong in this process, because it was so difficult to talk to the same person more than once, that basically all the responsibility for finding out what had gone wrong and fixing it fell on families themselves, which are some of the most vulnerable families in the state. Um, And the result was a million benefits denials in the first three years of the experiment. It was a 54% increase from the three years before the experiment, and almost all of them were denied for this catch-all reason that was in Sophie Stipes' letter, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Basically, all that meant is that a mistake was made somewhere in the application. Could be uh, the applicant forgot to sign page 18 in a 34-page application. Could be that this, the new regional call center workers didn't know the policy so well, so folks uh, got bad advice. Could be a technical problem. For example, the, um, the document um, processing center, the sort of scanning center, Um, lost so many documents that advocates started calling it the black hole in Marion. Um, So if any one of your documents went missing somewhere in the process, that was also seen as failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And it was really up to families to figure out what had gone wrong. Um, So this created enormous hardship for families. Um, And I just want to read you briefly a story of one of those people, Omega Young from Evansville, Indiana. So in the fall of 2008, Omega Young missed an appointment to recertify for Medicaid because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. The cancer that began in her ovaries had spread to her kidneys, breast, and liver. Her chemotherapy left her weak and emaciated. Young, a round-faced, umber-skinned mother of two grown sons, struggled to meet the new system's requirements. So she called her local county help center to let them know she was hospitalized and that's why she couldn't make her um, phone-based recertification appointment, but her medical benefits and food stamps were still cut off for failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Because she lost her benefits, she was unable to afford her medication, she struggled to pay her rent, she lost access to free transportation to medical appointments. And Omega Young died on March 1, 2009, on the next day. On March 2nd, she won an appeal for wrongful termination and all of her benefits were restored. So that's Indiana. But um, the second tool I want to talk about today is a tool called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, the AFST. Um, And the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County, which is the county where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. Um, So let me introduce you to a family. I want to introduce you to Angel um, and Patrick. Um, Angel Shepard and Patrick Grieb. So I met them at a a community support center for families who are involved in the child welfare system. Um, And Angel and Patrick didn't stand out right away because their experience really was so average. Um, It was so characteristic of what I see as the routine mundane indignities that are suffered by the white working class in the United States. So they've struggled with low-wage, dangerous work, poor quality public schools and predatory online education, poor health and community violence. Um, But through it all, they've been creative, involved parents. So I describe Patrick in the book as kind of a Buddhist ex-biker, right? So he's this enormous rectangle, like refrigerator-sized man, um, who has like really elaborate facial hair and he's really calm, he's like deeply calm. Um, And Angel and Patrick are caring for two young girls, or helping to care for two young girls, Angel's daughter, Harriet, and Patrick's daughter's daughter, Desiree. And the two girls are roughly the same age, so they bicker a lot, they fight a lot. So Angel and Patrick's solution for this is what they call the get-along shirt. And the get-along shirt is one of Patrick's like enormous button-down shirts. And they take both girls and they put them in the shirt, um, one arm through one armhole, one arm in the waist of the other girl, and they button the shirt back up. Um, And you're not allowed to leave the get-along shirt until you stop fighting, (laughs) even if you have to go to the bathroom. Um, And this is the thing that Patrick said, always works. As soon as someone has to pee, the fighting stops, because no one wants to pee in the get-along shirt. Um... So despite this, um, Angel and Patrick have racked up sort of a lifetime of interactions with the child welfare system in Allegheny County, which is called Children, Youth, and Family Services, or CYF. So Patrick was investigated for medical neglect in the early 2000s. Um, because he was unable to afford his daughter Tabitha's um, uh, antibiotic prescription after a visit to the emergency room. So he brought her to the emergency room because she was sick. They prescribed antibiotics. He couldn't afford to fill the prescription. She got worse. He brought her back. The nurse said, oh, we saw you before. We know you didn't fill the prescription. And they reported them for child neglect, um, for medical neglect. Um, When Harriet, Angel's daughter, was five, Someone phoned a string of reports to the County's Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline. So it's possible to be anonymous on these hotlines. So this sort of anonymous tipster explained that Harriet was running around the neighborhood unsupervised, that she was down the block teasing a dog, that she wasn't being properly clothed, fed, or bathed, that she wasn't getting needed medication. So for each call, an investigator from CYF came out to the house interviewed Harriet and Tabitha, Angel and Patrick, looked in all their cupboards and under all their beds, um, and requested access to the family's medical records. And then each time, they found no evidence of maltreatment, so they closed the case. But the record of these cases uh, is now kept in digital form um, and maintained on an integrated data um, warehouse that was built by the county in 1999, which feeds the Allegheny family screening tool. So, and I'll talk about how that system works in a sec. So Patrick and Angel described to me like that they felt like they did sort of a constant algebra of terror where they were trying to figure out what resource, what requesting which resources would drive their score up and make it more likely that they'd be investigated for child maltreatment which would make it more likely that one of their kids would be taken out of their home and put into foster care. Um, so Angel told, um, told me, um, this is a quote, you feel like a prisoner. You feel trapped. It's like no matter what you do, it's not good enough for them. My daughter's now nine, and I'm still afraid that they're going to come up one day, see her out by herself, pick her up, and say, you can't have her anymore. So the system in Allegheny County um, sort of began in 1999 when the county built this integrated data warehouse that gets... Um, regular data extracts from about 30 different agencies around the county and around the state. So as of the writing of the book, um, that integrated data warehouse held about a billion records, uh, which was more than 800 for every individual living in Allegheny County. But it doesn't actually collect data equally on everyone living in the county. In fact, the way that public services works in the U.S., it really only collects information about poor and working families. So, um, for example, if you're struggling with um, an addiction or recovery issue and you're a professional middle class family, you would go to your family doctor. That would be, they might refer you to addiction recovery. That would be covered by employer-provided private insurance, and that information would not go into this, data, this database. <laughs> if you're a poor and working class family, you'd rely on county services for that, those recovery services, and that data would go into the database. Um, if you uh, are a professional middle class family and you need uh, just some like uh, respite in your parenting, you might get a nanny or pay for a babysitter and you'll pay out of pocket. If you are a poor and working class person and you need daycare when you go to work, you're going to get that from a county-based uh, daycare provider um, and that information will go into the database. So the parents that I spoke to about the system said that it felt like it confused parenting while poor with poor parenting, and that it created what they called a feedback loop of injustice, where because they were reaching out for support from public services, their scores were higher. Because their scores were higher, they were investigated more often. Because they were investigated more often, more data was uh, in the system about them. Because there is more data about them in the system, their score was higher and the loop sort of closes. Um, so, Um, They were really concerned with what are known as false positives. So this system that um, uh, pulls variables from that data warehouse and runs an algorithm to create a risk score, Um, parents, as you might imagine, were really concerned that it would predict harm where no harm was actually occurring. Um, so that's a false positives problem. But I also spent a whole day sitting in the call center with intake screeners in the system or the front line of the caseworkers in the system. They're the folks who get the calls from the county um, hotline or who get reports from mandated reporters and make this really difficult decision about which ones to, to screen in for full investigations and which ones to screen out. Keep the data but not investigate right now. And call screeners were worried about the same problem, but from the opposite perspective. They were concerned about false negatives. Because the system has almost no data on professional middle-class families, they were concerned that the system would not be able to recognize the kind of or predict the kind of harm that actually might be happening in professional middle-class families. So for example, there's good data in the United States that um, uh, geographic isolation is correlated with maltreatment, but those folks won't end up in the data warehouse. So that kind of harm um, won't be recognized and they won't be able to predict it.
4: You're on Solidarity Breakfast. and. It's it's pretty sobering stuff, isn't it, Rebecca? Yep. Yeah, and uh, there's a uh, there's a last part. I, I can't help myself. Uh, it was a great speech, and uh, there was a panel discussion which was equally great. It was put an event put on by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. I actually got to speak to a a guy who was there on the way d- down to the tram stop. He was telling me about how he had been working for a university for thirty years, but then was uh, Uh, kicked out effectively because they all wanted them to be casual because he had tenure. And uh, for 12 months, he'd been uh, struggling with this unemployment system and uh, was so pleased to realise that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union existed because the state of powerlessness of a person in uh, that situation is so extreme and becoming extremer. (gasps) If that's a word, (laughs) yeah. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we'll listen to the last part of uh, Virginia Eubanks' uh, story. Her um, her book is uh, welfare rights activist. uh, Oh, sorry, um, automating inequality. That's what it's called. Uh, You might have difficulty finding it on Australian uh, books at Australian bookshops, but maybe you should get your library to buy it.
8: Um, So one of the things that's interesting about this system is the designers of the system will say that one of the reasons they built it um, is to identify and intervene intervene in racial disproportionality in the system. And that just means in the United States, 47 of 50 states um, pull um, black, biracial, and Native American children out of their families and put them into foster care at rates that far exceed... Uh, their proportion in the population. So that's known as racial disproportionality. It's a problem in Allegheny County like it is everywhere else. So the designers of the system say, we don't know that this system necessarily will solve racial disproportionality, but we believe with better data we can identify discriminatory decision making in the system and we can step in. Now what's really interesting is that the county's own data shows that intake screening, the point at which this tool is aimed, is not actually the place where racial disproportionality is entering the system. It actually enters at what's known as call referral, which is when people call on families to these hotlines or report them through mandated reporting processes. So in Allegheny County, black and biracial families are 350% more likely to be reported to child welfare services by the community once those cases get in the system, there is a little bit of disproportionality that's added at call screening. So call screeners screen in 69% of cases around black and biracial children and only 65% of cases around white children. But that's a 4% difference versus a 350% difference. And I think that's something that's really interesting around these systems. And it, it behooves us to pay really close attention when designers of these tools talk about them as tools for increasing racial equity. I think we should be really cautious um, when um, folks start making those arguments. Because what I saw in Allegheny County was a very sophisticated tool, um, a a very resource-intensive and sophisticated tool aimed at the place where the problem wasn't happening. And at worst, It could actually remove some human discretion from the front line of that system, these intake call screeners, who are, by the way, the most racially diverse, the most working class and the most female part of their workforce. Um, And uh, removing their discretion could very much create actually amplification of the kind of discrimination that's entering the system at call um, referral. So one of the questions I I try to leave people with in the book is um, to say we shouldn't be asking discretion yes or no. We should be asking discretion who? Because I have this very smart um, political science friend named Joe Sauce, um, and he said discretion is like energy. It can never be created or destroyed. It's only ever moved. So in this case... They're actually moving the discretion from the front line of their workers and giving it to the economists and data scientists and computer programmers who are developing the system. Um, Okay, so the third tool that I talk about in the book is called coordinated entry. Um, And it is a tool that's supposed to be able... To match the most vulnerable unhoused people with the most appropriate available housing resource. And I, this is actually a system that is in, um, in action pretty much everywhere in the United States and increasingly around North America. Um, I spent time reporting on it in Los Angeles County because Los Angeles County has one of the worst um, housing crises in the United States. So um, as of the writing of the book, there are 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County. So I live in a small city in upstate New York of 50,000 people. So my entire city plus 8,000 people are homeless in LA. Um, and. It's actually not the place where there are the most homeless people in the United States. That's actually New York City. There's 76,000 homeless people in New York City at least. But the thing that is unique about Los Angeles is that um, the 75% of the unhoused population has no shelter at all. So no emergency shelter. They're just living um, in encampments, in tents or in cars um, or just living out, living rough. Um, so, this is a, an extraordinary human rights crisis and I absolutely understand um, that frontline homeless services workers want some help making really difficult decisions about who gets access to resources. So I do not want to be the, ca- the case worker who sees 100 people a week and only has resources to give to two of them and has to decide that. So I absolutely understand why this tool um, is attractive. Um, and the proponents of the tool called the Match dot com of homeless services. What I was really interested in was um, the roughly 20,000 people who have gone through this process and have gotten no resources at all. So basically the way the system works is um, you do this very intensive um, and some think intrusive survey, the Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. So it asks things like, um, are you currently trading sex for money or drugs? Um, uh, is there an open warrant on you? Have you thought about harming yourself or someone else? Where can you be found at different times of the day? And can we take a picture? Um, so I was um, really interested um, in the people who had done this survey, um, sometimes multiple times, um, and hadn't really seen any resources materialize through it. I wanted to know how they felt uh, uh, about the tool. And these are folks like um, Uncle... Uh, Uncle Gary Boatwright, um, who goes by the nickname Uncle Gary, um, and I'll tell you just briefly about him. Um, So when I met Uncle Gary, he had been living in a gray and green tent on East 6th Street on the edge of Skid Row in L.A. um, for years. Uh, He's a straight-talking, wryly funny man with thinning white hair and Santa Claus blue eyes. Um, He's had a dozen careers as a welder, a mason, a paralegal, a door-to-door salesman, a law student. And most recently, he was a document processor for a wholesale mortgage lender, uh, which actually introduces all kinds of ironies into his story because this is one of the mortgage lenders uh, that got named uh, one of the subprime 25, which actually created the subprime mortgage crisis, which actually made a lot of people in Los Angeles homeless. Um, So since moving to Skid Row several years before I met him, Gary um, had filled out the VI-SPDAT three times and had really lost patience with the process. Um, So he doesn't think he scored very high. Um, He's 64 and other than a little high blood pressure and a hearing problem, he's mostly healthy. Um, His substance use, to me, didn't seem debilitating or abusive. Um, And he has a mental health diagnosis, um, but he doesn't actually know what it is. Um, He only found out about it when he went to court in Orange County and no one had ever uh, shared uh, his diagnosis with him. Um, But the problem, as he sees it, is not his comparative vulnerability, how vulnerable he is compared to the guy living in the tent next to him. It's simple math. There's not enough housing in Los Angeles for the county's 58,000 unhoused people. So he told me, people like me, who are somewhat higher functioning, we're not getting housing. It's another way of kicking the can down the road. In order to house the homeless, you have to have available units. Show me the units. Otherwise, you're just lying. So in November of 2016, as the book was about to go to press, um, Gary was arrested and he was charged with breaking the window of a public bus with a plastic 99-cent store broom, Um, which when he called me from Men's Central Jail in L.A. he said was, quote, physically impossible. Um, He got out about a year ago, um, and when he got out, he had lost everything. So his tent, his paperwork, his relationships with local organizations and friends Um, And if he decides to interact with the vi Spadat and coordinated entry again, he'll actually score lower on the survey um, because it counts incarceration as being housed. So the model will see him as less vulnerable and his priority score will slip even lower. Um, So one of the things that Gary said that was so important and so interesting was that he said that he felt like he was incriminating himself (sighs) Um, in order to get a slightly higher lottery ticket for housing. And this is actually not a bad analysis. So the results of the VI-SPDAT go into a system called the Homeless Management Information System, which is a federal system. Um, and under federal data law in the United States, um, actually law enforcement can access data in that system with no warrant at all, no oversight at all, no written record. They can just, a line officer can just walk into a social service office and ask for information out of that database. So here's the part I've, I've worked out a little bit less because I'm responding to um, a talk that I did on Monday in Wellington, in New Zealand. Um, where I was on a panel with um, an unnamed individual um, who has been responsible for developing the ethical frameworks around many of these systems in New Zealand. And one of the things that really stood out for me in that conversation is I shared a lot of the stories I just shared with you um, of the struggles of people um, I know and love um, and their families to survive. Um, And every time we tried to engage in conversation, he would basically say, well, let's put that reality aside for now. (laughs) And let's talk about this as if we could bracket things like racial inequality and economic inequality. Then would you be okay with these kinds of systems? And I kept saying that question makes no sense because we don't actually live in that world. And he was like, yeah, but philosophically, right? Kant's categorical imperative requires that, blah, blah, blah. Um, And uh, I uh, managed to stay mostly civil, though I do think I might have bled out of my eyes a little bit um, (laughs) during part of that conversation. Um, And I've had this conversation a lot of times. One of the things that's really important to me about the book is that it demands that we engage these questions concretely through the real experiences of people who are directly affected by these systems. And I think we're doing that much too little right now. Um, so I want to say that um, in the face of this kind of abstraction, um, we have to cultivate and articulate what I'm thinking of now as a kind of defiant concreteness. Right? We have to refuse to allow them to make our survival a thought experiment a question of professional ethics or a technically elegant problem. So we have to reject these really cynical values that are at the heart of these new technologies, especially the disingenuous, I think, way that they rationalize morally corrupt work by suggesting that their tools actually address inequality and bias. They insist on this, but when we ask them to show us how this works exactly, They say, you know what, don't worry. Trust us. We have better data about your lives than you do. We'll take care of it. Um, Really what they're saying is disappear, go die. So the solution, I think, is to continue to insist on the value of our lives, our knowledge, and our communities. Um, So the last chapter of the book is called Dismantling the Digital Poorhouse. And I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs. So on March 31st, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his last Sunday sermon called Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. So King declared that the world was undergoing a triple revolution, a technological revolution sparked by automation and what he called cybernation a revolution in warfare triggered by nuclear weapons, and a human rights revolution inspired by anti-colonial struggles for freedom across the globe. Though technological innovation was bringing the world a sense of what he called geographic oneness, um, he he preached that our ethical commitment to each other was not keeping pace. So quote, through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood, but somehow, and in some way, we have got to do this. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality." In this sermon, King called on those who would be what he called conscientious objectors uh, in the war against poverty he called them to a moral reckoning, and he warned them that a movement was coming to shake their moral foundations. So in his voice, he stood in the nation's capital and he intoned the following. One day, we'll have to stand before the god of history and we'll talk in terms of things we've done. Yes, we'll be able to say, we built gargantuan bridges to span the seas. We built gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Yes, we made our submarines to penetrate oceanic depths. We brought into being many other things with our scientific and technological power. It seems that I can hear the god of history saying, that was not enough. I was hungry and you fed me not. I was naked and you clothed me not. I was devoid of a decent sanitary house to live in and you provided no shelter for me. And consequently, you cannot enter the kingdom of greatness. Fifty years later, King's question has only become more urgent. He didn't foresee that the very technological wonders he extolled might be turned against the poor. Our ethical evolution still lags behind our technological revolutions. But more importantly, because we failed to address King's most crucial challenges, dismantling racism, ending poverty, and destroying war, the digital revolution has warped to fit the shape of our still inequitable world. We, too, will stand in the eyes of justice and talk of what we've done. We've programmed bots to converse like humans. We've built cars that can drive themselves. We even have apps that allow us to document police abuse and mobilize protest. The god of history is still saying, that is not enough. Thank you.
10: You're listening
1: to five eight five five am, the voice of the community.
4: Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast. You can see why I couldn't, I couldn't be too aggressive with uh, cutting we ha- that. Matt, we had <laughs> yes. to hear most of that. Yep. It was just, uh, just what had to be said. Anyway, that was. Uh, Virginia Eubanks. She was brought out. She was she was doing a tour, and uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union uh, arranged for us all to hear what she had to say. And there was a panel as well. If you want to know more about the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, you can go online and you're online www.unemployedworkersunion.com. dot uh, com. We're going to move on now. We're going to move on to something you went to. Uh, it's been an ongoing protest, hasn't it? Yeah,
5: yeah. They had, there's a campaign. Uh, to duplicate the upfield line, and yeah, people have been getting out in the streets and and uh, telling their stories about tr- just travelling to work, and and
10: yeah,
4: and why they need a railway station. Yeah.
11: Transport Alliance, which is who has um, has started this campaign, um, and Councillor Sue Bolton
8: um, was the one that actually uh, founded the initiative, um, it's to duplicate the line urgently, that's our primary um, reason, yeah. but, we're, exactly, earlier than 15 years, but we also want to see other improvements which includes um, an extension of the line to Craigie Bird, uh, stations built in Camberfield and Pedalus Lane in Somerton. And an extension of the bike track to Summerton and buses to operate from first train to last train. It's no use if we exactly, it's no use if we have a a great running train line if we can't have well connecting buses.
0: Um, On behalf of the Muslims Information Network of Australasia, Uh, My name is Abdul Aziz. I've been here in Faulkner for about uh, two and a half to three years now. And um, I had a similar speech uh, in the previous rally as well. Um, But I just want to say a few things about, you know, how we as uh, the IT employees from Faulkner and around Faulkner, how we deal with this on a day-to-day basis. So I think we all understand that this is our only commute to the city. We don't have trams. So I think that's clear. How many of you have heard of something called the Agile methodology? And I'm assuming most of you who have heard about this methodology are from the IT background. Am I right? Yep. So, in the Agile methodology, and one particular type of Agile, I think everybody understands the word Agile. And what they're trying to do, these companies are trying to adopt a new methodology to make work Faster to help employees work more efficiently. That involves one of the ceremonies that we do is called the daily stand-up meeting. And depending on how psycho your manager is, that <laughs> daily stand-up meeting happens either at 8:30 or 9 or 9:30 or 10 in the morning. It's a daily meeting where eight people gather around, they have to stand and they have to describe what they did yesterday, what they're doing today, and what they're going to do tomorrow. This meeting, if it's fixed, has no, there's no way that you can not go to this meeting. If you're stuck on the train, you still need to make a call and try and attend and update the rest of the team as to where you are. This is a killer for us on the upfield line because when we come back after doing the child drop offs at around eight thirty and stand for the eight forty train and they cancel that, that means we take the nine o'clock train and reach work by ten. And do you know what time and, and the stand up is already over? And then do you know what time we get back home? We leave office at around six again, and then come back home around seven when the kids are just falling asleep. This is our life. For the past one week, I've gotten more than 25 to 30 updates on the metro app. Talking about train cancellations and delays. And I am not exaggerating. Anybody who has the metro app knows that this is a fact. We can't keep dealing with this and just complaining to people about it. I think we need to do a few more IT-based initiatives as well to get this in the face of politicians who can make a decision for us.
3: No on
2: the line. this is a social equity issue uh, it's a social equity issue that governments don't give a stuff about working-class communities and that's why this line has languished for so many years governments have not given us stuff about working-class communities if this was a very wealthy community in the north something would have been done about this train line years ago. So, Moreland Council has had a position on its books for many years and so has Hume Council saying that they support the duplication of the line, but they haven't been doing anything to enact that resolution. They've been doing nothing. And actually, I should acknowledge, actually, uh, one of the other councillors, Mark Riley, who's deputy mayor, is here today. Um, And Moreland Council did pass a a motion unanimously, which is great, because it means across party lines, to support this campaign and call for not just some tokenistic, sometime in the future, duplication of the line, but bring it forward now. Our preference in this campaign is for the, the line to be duplicated in um, at the same time that level crossings are removed so that there's only one lot of duplication on the line. But the critical thing is it has to be done by the time the metro tunnel is finished because if it's not done by then we'll only get marginal improvement from the metro tunnel. The metro tunnel won't do very much. And there is also a view that maybe we could just have extra trains going to Coburg to um, to maybe speed things up for people in the southern part of the line. I think that's a problem as well because we need a united solution for everybody who lives yes. along the line. Yes. We have to, people in the north, are. everyone along the line is suffering, but people in the north are suffering the worst. And. But also even adding extra trains just going to Coburg wouldn't resolve the situation. Train drivers tell me that all that would do is trains would be banked up at Molin Station waiting for the train to come back from Coburg. So that's not even a solution for people in the southern part of the line. So I think we need to drop that idea and fight to bring the duplication of the line forward.
1: So on, on this issue, you, you're already great supporters of it and you don't need me to, uh, to convince you, so I won't. I'll just tell you a little bit about what I've been doing prior to the election. I, I made uh, two or three things my key issues in, in Brunswick, but they're also symbolic of what needs to be done across Victoria. And one of those was to increase the frequency of services on the upfield line. And, and I got an email on Tuesday inviting me to come and speak. And, it, and the email said that the services on the upfield line were languid. And, and I think languid's a lovely word. Languid describes kind of how you got to feel. Languid makes me think of a drink with an umbrella in it. And, and that's sort of the service we're getting. It's high class, there's no doubt about it. But you've got to put in the time waiting for the train. So... If we want to improve that, if we want something that that might approach brisk uh, or or even, you know, Swiss, um, then we've got to fix the system. And there's a lot of money going into transport in this state at the moment. You've got to say, you know, the Greens get accused of shouting from the sidelines while Labor gets on and delivers. But what are they delivering? A lot of that big money going into transport is going into the most expensive road on the planet, which is the North East Link. And seriously, seriously... We need, so here am I, shouting on the sidelines, Labour, would you please deliver us more frequent services on the upfield for environmental reasons, so that we can put less air pollution into the sky, for equity reasons, so that people who live up here have access to the jobs and services in the CBD and the growth corridor to the north, and for traffic congestion reasons, for God's sake. If If the other two don't float your boat think about the traffic congestion we've got to get more people off out of their cars into trams and onto trains and we can't do it with that bit of single track which i can just see right up there at the trees so i've organised a meeting at long last i've got a meeting with the public transport minister next week and this will be top of the agenda
9: G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR.
3: A week Solidarity Bricky Team listener, when a week that was cannot ignore the New Zealand terrorist massacre. It's over a week, but occurred after we recorded last week's segment, but obviously we can't treat it lightly, humorously, satirically. We can but iterate the comments made by numerous programmers on this station and in some other places, the danger of white supremacist neo-fascism, the relationship between neo-fascists and the people who are supposed to monitor and police them, the concentration of so-called security forces on the left of politics and in recent years Islamophobia, the whipping up of anti-progressive and racist hatred by the usual suspects who now deny any role in their role by the media, particularly the Murdoch media, the blaming of, quote, left extremists whenever there was a clash with fascists. This year's Invasion Day march, a prime example, when a maverick white supremacist at Flinders Street clashed with marchers, was portrayed as Invasion Day march violence, violent blacks violating our great national day. The people preaching cooperation, community, genuine fairness, integration, acceptance, are depicted and spied on and policed as the threat back in the anti-vietnam war campaign calling for peace for an end to the slaughter we were surveilled and followed um, followed incessantly by asio the commonwealth coppers the state special branch a political police bent on monitoring left-wing activists a war like wars, since biased on, based on lies, Menzies had concocted the evidence, we said, proven true when the 30-year cabinet papers were released. Yet the authorities saw us as the threat, and those who supported war and slaughter, those who profited from war and slaughter, needed protection from us. But then the state apparatus exists to protect the dominant means of production, to protect, in our case, capitalism. Thus, it will be so until we change the means of production and now the concentration on controlling social media, which needs controlling but veils the real necessity, the condemnation and proper surveillance and policing of the real threat. The hypocrisy and myopia of the usual suspects now decrying the massacre after years of racism, Islamophobia, whipping up hatred against the other is breathtaking." On which, back to our normal week that was, on which I can't help myself, Constable Peter Duffer declared he is proud of his role and what he has achieved as Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and keeping us secure, leaving us speechless. That sums him up. Also, leaving us speechless, having mentioned Lord Rupert of Wapping and social media, Lord Rupert, well, News Very Limited on his behalf made a submission to this True Blue Aussie Competition and Consumer Commission inquiry into digital platforms that the Commission must uh, break up Google's operations to curb its abuse of, the, of its dominant market power. Lord Rupert, what, what can we say again? google threatening and undermining the security and funding of news and journalism strikes at the heart of our system of democracy the man who has done so much for the heart of our system of democracy submitted google's position as gatekeeper and its market power in the ad tech stack creates real and serious threats to the ability of publishers such as Newsberry Limited Corp to generate sufficient returns in order to viably fund news and journalism which from our point of view sounds pretty encouraging. And on journalism, good to see see Lord Rupert in defending journalism, dropping a split infinitive right in the middle of it all. But maybe it shouldn't leave us speechless. And seeing I'm talking about it, it probably hasn't, that generate sufficient returns just might sum up the basis of his case, given its Just a touch rich for the rich Lord Rupert to urge a huge corporate international behemoth be broken up. Wonder if they do see the irony of it all. But then, we must be fair. Lord Rupert is one of the great philanthropists. Indeed, he's the answer to homelessness. He told us so himself, with all humility. His whopping sin has been running these full-page house ads, extolling its role, bringing us all the news we need to know, its balance and objectivity. And this week ran a page telling us all the great philanthropy it brings to Melbourne, including Ask Lizzie, quote, a directory for the homeless providing information on housing, food and legal help, a much-needed tool for the rising rate of homelessness in Troublesseys. Although, if Lord Rupert's doing so much to combat homelessness, how come it's rising? Because as we pass the homeless on our streets, we're taken by how they're all absorbed on their computers and expensive smartphones, seeking Lord Rupert's advice and can assume the legal help bit comes in handy when they're apprehended for knocking off a bit of food to stave off starvation mentioned last week how distressed Lord Rupert was that dear little brainwashed school students were taking to the classroom of the streets to call for genuine action over climate change, none of their puerile business, when their place was in the classrooms of the non-brainwashed. The same day, a story telling us what they should have been learning. Kids need schooling about our increasingly cashless society. A generation of tap-and-go credit card kids need to learn the value of digital money. The story opened, and if anyone could teach them the value of a quid, it's Lord Rupert. Yet there they were being brainwashed on the streets. On great writing and the need for industry to observe self-regulation rather than the costly, time-absorbing red and green and every other coloured tape of the bloated hand of the public sector And the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Financial Royal Commission confirmed the huge success of self regulation. It was hugely successful until the bloody Royal Commission came along. Yeah, okay, okay, but a new self regulatory insurance industry code of conduct has been put on hold after complaints it was not written in comprehensive English. Sorry, sorry, they conceded. We are so used to writing policies and worst pack bank has decided to abandon its personal advice service with big supremo brian hurts the customers blaming layers of regulation and legislation the bloated hand of again okay we are still able to charge customers for financial advice but but now they expect us to actually provide it oh that her most gracious majesty cause commission has a lot to answer for but If the selfless practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all think they've got it tough here, spare a thought for their U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world-based co-exploiters. Sorry, sorry, where did that come from? Our Counterparts. In New York, the governor plans a special tax on properties valued at more than $7 million dollars, owned by non-residents to raise raise funds for the public transport system, public housing and other public services, he says are being run down. And here's where satire can take a rest, because yet again we can't out-satire the gasping filthy rich. Donna Olshan, a big end-of-town real estate mogul, rightfully slammed the proposal as class warfare against the rich. Oh, can we think of anything more abhorrent? Why punish them for being rich and living more of the time somewhere else? Why, why, we have to ask. And Rachel Oslo um, Lustbart, a real name, a reality broker, made a very, very strong case against the law. It makes the city look very unfair. These people don't take the subway. (laughs) I mean, how can we even in satire say it any better than that? Of course they don't. And these people may not pay income tax, but they pay plenty, Rachel went on. They just don't buy a hot dog. They go to all the high-end restaurants, Gucci and Chanel. A sentiment endorsed by Barry Hirsch, a New York University real estate professor and former property developer. The very rich really hate taxes, he said. Again, no embellishment, direct quotes, as if we need to be told. Back here, that great worry for our very rich who really hate taxes, slow wages growth. Their desire to pay higher wages if only lazy, avaricious workers could be a bit more productive. Well, the Reserve Bank has brought out a report agreeing that since 2012, real wages have grown ever so slowly, or declined ever so quickly, depending how we look at it, despite, quote, solid productivity growth a formula for solid wage growth now I hear you. Sorry uh, to disappoint, but no, no. We need to take a long-term view, the bank said, and let's be clear, there's absolutely no connection between this and our earlier comment that the apparatus of the state exists to protect the economic order. A long-term view, the bank said, meaning we assume, forget the solid productivity growth for the past seven years of wage stagnation and let's start again whip workers into a bit more productivity and maybe maybe a small wage increase although given the sundry chambers of profits and their members somehow missed the solid productivity growth completely and didn't realize they could provide wage rises workers need to come up with much more than just solid productivity growth if they also expect to be paid. Finally, by week's end, warnings about Salmonella being found in eggs. Maybe it's just an example of solidarity. The eggs have simply gone out in sympathy with Fraser hanging them's head. On the positive side, given Fraser knows there's no such thing as climate change, it couldn't have been a fried egg. Just think a baker's dozen, 13 eggs plus a half dozen eggs would equal the number of votes which elected Fraser to the Senate. Students marching in their thousands, student egg boy egging Fraser. It's been a good week for education. Good morning.
4: Yes, good morning. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast. It's always nice to hear Kevin's roundup of the week. Now, we're in the studio, we've got uh, Jerem Small. Now, Jerem, we've got you in because we want to know what it's like to suddenly be an ordinary citizen and then throw your, your hat in the ring and decide that you're going to be a candidate for the upcoming federal election. Can you first tell us where you're running? And uh, t- uh, tell us a little bit about your personal experience of this major event in your life.
6: Okay, well I'm running in uh, Colwell, which uh, is basically Broadmeadows, Craggyburn and a little bit around the airport. Uh, for Victorian socialists in the upcoming federal election. I ended up being the kind of, I suppose you'd say, accidental candidate for Victorian socialists in Broadmeadows in the state election. I was trying to coerce a bunch of other people into standing and assure them that there was nothing much to it. And then when they turned around and said, "Okay, well, you know, you see how you go then. I didn't really have a leg to stand on. So um, from a standing start and... um, uh you know like a party that didn't exist a year ago that no one had heard of we managed to get in the in the lower house seat of broad um just over seven percent um in the election which is you know decent um and overall more
4: than
5: earning So,
6: mm, no, <laughs> yeah.
5: no, no, to... don't mention his name sorry, yeah, yeah well
6: we ended up in in the northern metro seat where we were trying to the the upper house seat we were trying to get Steve Jolly in we we got just about 19,000 votes which is I suppose about a thousand times more than um, yeah yeah he who was egged yeah, um yeah. but missed out we were hoping to get that fifth upper house spot for Northern Metro but missed out just because of um, the way the preferences fell and all of that so um yeah the basically the decision was well you know, that was a pretty decent result for a totally new party with very little in the way of resources and or whatever. And
4: also learning skills around running a campaign of this sort.
6: Yeah, um, and just getting to know people. So, um, like, I think a big reaction of a lot of people last time was, look, everything that you're saying sounds fantastic, you know, talking about um, the incredible wealth that's generated by this society and the fact that, you know, very little of it seems to go to ordinary people that social welfare, as we were hearing this morning on your program, is more and more punitive um, you know, around the world, but including in Australia, um, that the rich in this country, like the top 200 people, increased their wealth by $49 billion in just one year, You know, 21% increase well, in They're one really year. doing
4: it tough, those guys.
6: Yeah, which includes, of course, the two owners of Chemist Warehouse, um, Gants and Verrocki, mm-hmm. sitting on only $1.6 billion, so we'll be passing the hat around. But when you've got wealth like that, like it's just an obscenity that there's things like structural unemployment in this country you know there's plenty of jobs that they're doing there's plenty of unemployed people and there's the resources to employ them like in any sane society you'd put those three things together and actually have decent jobs repairing some of the social and environmental damage that you know that needs fixing up but
4: it's a very interesting area that you're uh, actually seeking to uh, represent because Around Broad Meadows there were a lot of factories that have all been closed. Now, a lot of the people who uh, generationally would have lived there had a reasonable uh, living, quite, uh, you know, reasonably well off as a working class person and family because of potential work at the car factories and some of the others. Then all of them, it's like a wasteland, isn't it, mm. at the moment?
6: yeah' there's, there's a lot of unemployment i mean some parts of um the Broad Matters electorate get up to 25 percent unemployment yeah, which is even slightly more which is the sort of un, un, unemployment rates that you've got in like crisis hit Greece over the last few um and, and years i guess what I was getting at, standard, yeah, yeah. And,
4: and what I'm getting at is that people uh in the past this was not the case i mean it's it, it's happened in a sort of cataclysmic way for them
6: yeah and it was interesting you know like the number one way of campaigning we turn up to community events we stick up posters you know we do all sorts of things but the number one way that we found of having a conversation with people is just lobbying on people's doorsteps you know knock knock hello Victorian socialists we think the corporates have too much power they've got the main (laughs) parties in their back pocket you know do you want to give them a kick come election time Mm. and the scene where the conversation goes it was interesting just on that like how many people a lot of older people would say look you know, I did all right, you know, working in Ford or some of the factories that fed that, or, you know, there's a lot of heavy industry. A lot of the people bearing costs of that in terms of, you know, long term health problems um, and so on from um, the work that they've done. But it's the next generation that all of those people are um, concerned about. Um, and just the, I mean, this, well, I suppose similar theme, talking to a guy on the um, chemist warehouse picket line this week, um, and he was saying, in 1989, as a forklift driver, he was earning $23.50 an hour, which was a good wage back mm. in 1989. Yeah. He's now earning, and, and that was full time. So he yeah. had all of his entitlements, annual leave, sick leave, and so on. Twenty three fifty dollars an hour in 1989. In 2019, 30 years later, he's, he's earning 26 bucks an hour as a casual, so no entitlements yeah. at all. And that seemed to be a pretty common story either through the generations or in some cases... You know, in the same individual, just saying there used to be a lot of decently paid, unionised, blue collar well, jobs. And a, now it's, you know.
4: Yeah, no, it's an active destruction of uh, uh, working class and lump and life. In Australia.
6: Yeah, that's right. And that's obviously not going to get better just from, you know, a well-meaning socialist lobbying on people's doorsteps and having a nice conversation like, you know, there's going to Although have to they be. Might,
4: they might be quite happy to have someone listen to their yeah. change. Well, yeah, yeah and, and
6: and and saying, yeah, that that's certainly true and and saying the things that, you know, maybe labor or, you know, other parties used to say, whether they acted on them was another matter. But, like, just saying some pretty obvious home truths, which, you know, everyone seems to know that the rich get getting richer and the rest of us are more and more insecure and uh, failing to catch up. But no one seems to say much more than rhetoric about it. Now, to really address that, you'd need a big revival in the union movement, in my opinion. Mm. You'd need something like some sort of, you know, people's movement. And it's not like we in Victorian socialists pretend, you know, vote for us, we'll click our heels together and mm. um, everything will be fixed. But having... Um Being able to use elections and hopefully in the future being able to use a parliamentary platform to boost the struggles of um, of unions of um, oppressed groups in our society um, of community groups, and so on um the sort of way that you know Sue Bolton, who we heard uh, before is mm. done on a council level that Steve Jolly's done on a council level. Um, but to be able to do that on a bigger scale, I suppose, is, you know, um a big part of why we see our project as worthwhile.
4: it's pretty unusual actually for the socialists to take this step to decide to put their hat in the ring for the parliamentary representation. Can you talk to that?
6: Yeah. Um well if I had a Because I mean you need yeah.
4: a revolution really. <laughs>
6: Yeah I think we do Like the, the rich and the powerful The 1% those 200 people that have increased their wealth by $49 billion Aren't just going to sort of sit back and, and say And then oh, well, have the
4: audacity to blame everybody else Yeah
6: They're not going to give up their wealth and their power Just because we say so Or no. because you know a few people in parliament say so So you'll need a very powerful movement indeed You know to wrest any wealth out of them Let alone to have a whole system that prioritises people over profit Um. But this is about moving the furniture a bit, isn't it? This is, yeah, like, um, I suppose shifting the political conversation to the left. So it's rather than just different varieties of neoliberalism and you can't do anything or say anything or demand anything. Well, let's start talking about what we really need to, you know, to start to fix up society, you know, instead of just sort of. Actually, like it, pose the question. Well, that's right. Let's rather yeah. than
4: pretend that they aren't actually there.
6: Yeah, and set our sights a bit higher, and mm. say, okay, you know, now that we can see what we're fighting for, let's, let's try to take st- take some concrete steps towards that. And no one's pretending that that's a straightforward. Um, a lot of uh, hard sort of work, process. though.
4: Personally, for you, uh,
6: I love it. Like it's um, like it can be a hard slog, just sort of traipsing around the suburbs. But I just I really love. You know, the engagement that you get and the stories that you hear, um, both of, I mean, you know, you hear plenty of stories of hardship and so on, but just the humanity that people manage to hang on to in the face of pretty inhuman conditions, uh, obviously. Um, and then to turn up with some sort of a message of um, hope, I suppose, that, you know, the way things are is not the way that they have to be. And let's actually, you know, demand what we want and fight for what we want instead of just accepting, you know, some second best version. Um, and that can that can really resonate with people. Um, so I never get sick of that. Um, yeah. Um, I just probably should chuck in as well. If people want to find out more about the campaign uh, for Victorian socialists, we'll be having a very short and hopefully very sharp um, election campaign for the federal elections. We've got a, a launch coming up on um, Saturday, April the 6th. Um which, where is it at Preston Town hall, which is in Gower Street in Preston six um, thirty at six thirty p m yeah so um we'll all appear.
4: invited mm-hmm. yes,
6: all invited um hope to see everyone there from three c r um you can find out more about the campaign and find out what role you can play in trying to create some sort of a political alternative um to the you know basically the the varieties of neoliberalism on offer so see how we go.
4: thanks very much for coming Cheers in, thank Karen. you thanks yep. to
6: three c r for having me cheers yeah.
4: yeah. And uh, we were going to... uh, There's an event on, actually, on Sunday. Yes. Do you want to tell people about this? This is not about the socialists. This is just about uh, blissful music.
5: Yes. Well, I'm not sure if it's blissful, but uh, Race Rage is really awesome. Uh, Yeah, they've been a part of... The the change um, revolutionary hip hop musical and they're performing on Sunday for Summer Sounds. So it's um, two thirty to three thirty at a Bargunga Narjin Rooftop. Sorry, I'm like really probably not pronouncing that well, but it's one eight two St George's Road, North Fitzroy, and above it's the, the above the library. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Do you want to give them a taster? Sure. Oh, now I can't it's find it. It's over there, right at the end, third. There, oh, there. that's a yep. shot.
11: He was in the custody of Senior Sergeant Christopher Hurley.
2: There was a fall.
0: It was uh, what he called compressive force. If I go and kill somebody like that, they'll fly me off to prison quick, saving anyone else here. Put him in prison where you
11: belong. Who let the dogs loose from my people? The epitome of evil, if this is a crime scene The cops are the criminals Yeah, the cops are the criminals We burn down the courtroom of fire in our hearts They burn down, the cops up to hide evidence, a scum He tripped, he fell to hell with that bullshit It takes a hard hit for your liver to split Can't you see why there's fire in the fury? Cop found innocent, no blacks on the jewellery Burn, let the walls burn All that lying and killing, when will you learn? Burn Let the walls burn We shout it, we scream it, but she never learned Burn Let the walls burn How many deaths in custody Till people wake up and see We got a right to live on our lamb To be free from the bully boy in blue who wants to kill me Now it's off to Canberra To the tent embassy Ancestors is exiled here for punishment Strong spirit resistance unites us Palm Island today is a powder keg One more injustice to ignite us I see history repeating judiciary cheating Justice we are seeking White overseer controls the fear Serves out a death sentence for speaking Any threat to white authority is met with cop brutality. We face trauma, pain, and total poverty. The bounce back will come in community. Any threat to white authority is met with cop brutality. This ain't a pill to will us into apathy. Meet us on the front line and off to the ten embassy. Burn, let the walls burn. All that lying and killing. When will you learn? Burn, let the walls. Burn.
5: Yeah, so we're we're listening to Race Rage at the moment, and uh, we've also got uh, O'Neill on the line, uh, who is from Voice of West Papua, and he's going to quickly give us an update about uh, what's happening in Sentani. Good morning, O'Neill.
10: Good morning. How are you?
5: Good. Uh, how are you this morning?
10: Um, <laughs> still sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's okay. Yeah, We're working together, you know. Yeah, racing for people back home.
5: Yeah. So, what's the latest uh, from Santani?
10: Okay, from um, the latest from Santani, um, some some of the community haven't been reached out because of um, the government only focuses on like one or two. Uh, uh, evacuation camp, yeah, and it's hard. It's very hard to distribute all the food to the whole community. I mean, there are some people, a lot of people, like say in the foundations we've been working with, called uh, Yayasan Abdi Budayano Santara. Um, they are they are outside of uh, a government um, evacuation. Camp team so it's just an initiative from different foundations that are helping other communities that haven't been reached out near the mountains and um St. Tani.
5: Yeah, and the flood waters have have the flood waters subsided yet or?
10: Um ye- yesterday yesterday uh, the rain uh well it's finished, like yep. only foot today but like the whole week it was heavy rain so the the flood is not only happening in sentani it's actually going to the south side of jaipura in which closest to the city area Mm. so yeah if um the rain keep coming more people been evacuated and then uh, as we know all the whole house been like it's already broken down and yeah a lot of people displaced and at the moment the government working to build um emergency houses for these people that has been waiting and staying at the evacuation camp yeah so, so how it, can
5: how can people help from oh, here
10: well, oh maybe uh i I' thought about like what's happening last week yep. first because people maybe don't know about the flood in West Papua so yep. um Last week, Saturday, it was a flash flood and landslide in Sentani, Geapura, capital city of West Papua, where more than seventy people were killed and six thousand people, more than six thousand people, evacuated. So yeah, such a tragic news. Like after a climate change strike, as we know, happening last week. So yeah. The, the community and the government been working and not many um international NGOs say Oxfam or where mm-hmm. um helping out. so we need uh as much help as much help as possible as a community to, you know, bring more well supply medical or food for for the children and then yeah, for the people that really wanna help, um this Afternoon, there will be a social of from fundraising for our flood victims in Tintani at um, Woolworth across the Preston Market, and then yeah, if you are if you are handy with the internet, you can visit um, our online fundraising call flood relief for West Papua at jaff.org.chu. F-E-D.org. So yeah, yeah we gonna fundraise to uh, buy food, first aid supplies, nasty baby food, and make form- milk formula because um yep. definitely childrens and babies are our most parents.
5: vulnerable. Yeah. Yes. Thanks O'Neill. we 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 have to go but yeah hopefully oh, we'll, cool. people will get down there to Preston uh Woolies and uh buy a sausage or just donate if you don't need a sausage definitely, definitely. <laughs> Cool Thank you
10: so much
5: All right thanks Yes
4: and that's it for solidarity breakfast so get down there to uh help uh Flood Victims in West Palpia. that's uh, Preston Market, outside Woolies, um, and apparently that's going on from about 9am yeah. onwards, yeah. so that's good. Uh, we have to get out of here. We uh, went to uh, the robo-automation um, of welfare. We uh, went on to uh, uh, to upfield... Um, protests for more trains. We talked to uh, a socialist candidate, Jerome Small, about why he's and what it means. And uh, we went on to tell you about the uh, floods in West Papua. All great stuff from Current Affairs at 3CR. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. <laughs>
7: If you knew the earth was dying, if they said this on the news, if they would clarify the picture, instead of seeking to confuse, if you could see the ice caps melting, if you could watch the oceans rise, if you could see the consequences right before your eyes, if you knew the kids were dying, if you could look inside the river where their food comes from, filled with cyanide, if you could hear the parents pleading, if they were looking right at you, if you could see the anguish in their hearts, what if you knew... If you knew the bombs were falling, if they showed them hit the ground, if you could see the bodies flying, if you could hear the sound, if you could see the rubble where the hospital once stood, if you saw the child's lifeless limbs, would you hold them if you could? If you knew that they were lying, every time they spoke for every laser-guided pinprick, there were lives lost in the smoke. If instead of just the generals, they had doctors too to describe the carnage of the cluster bombs. What if you knew? They were saying when they think you cannot hear If you understood what they do, if for you it was so clear If you knew they shut down the factory in an economic ruse If you could kiss the cheek of the child in the sweatshop that made your shoes Every time we went to war to fight our evil foes They told you we were really... F-
11: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au